listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. It's true. You are listening to Radio Orbit, and my name is Mike Hagan. Dr. Sven Nyholm is an assistant professor of philosophy and ethics at Utrecht University. That's in the Netherlands. Dr. Nyholm's work focuses on the ethics of automated driving, human-robot collaboration, deep brain stimulation, and disability and the goods of life. He's especially interested in how robotization and other types of automation affect traditional human values, as well as in questions raised by new technological developments. He has a new book out entitled Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. It's a profound read, and we're going to learn more about it with Dr. Sven Nyholm right about now. Before we get going, I do just want to say thank you. I, I'm real thrilled to have the chance to talk to you. I think your work is real important and, and super interesting, and uh, I'm sure glad that uh, I have a chance to talk with you today, Doctor. Well, thank you. Very good. Let's start off with uh, a couple of questions about your background. First of all, where are you located? You're up in the, is it the Netherlands or somewhere in Scandinavia? Is that correct? Uh, yeah, it's the Netherlands. I mean, that's not Scandinavia, but it's south of Scandinavia. Mm. And I uh, work at the university in Utrecht. And that's the University of Technology at Eindhoven. Is that correct? Uh, no. So I just, uh, I was working up uh, there for the last four years, but then uh, uh, November of last year, I transferred, uh, well, I guess 15 minutes north to Utrecht, uh, where I now work. I see. Okay. Uh, the Utrecht University. Could you tell us a little bit about the nature of your work at the university there? Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's a bunch of different things, and so uh, everything from uh, my own research, uh, writing uh, academic articles, books, and uh, supervising master's students, PhD students, teaching courses, and, uh, you know, being on various committees and things like that. Uh, so uh, juggling on many different things at the same time, basically. All right. How about a little bit about, about your background so people kind of get a feel for how you came to get involved in ethics of technology and some of these other related fields? Sure. So, well, I, um, I grew up in Sweden, and... Uh, uh, when I was in high school, it was possible to take a philosophy course, which <laughs> I did. And uh, I didn't really have a sense that I understood what it was all about, but I did get a good grade in that course. And my <laughs> teacher sort of encouraged me to study some more philosophy when I went to college, which I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there on, uh, I was uh, very pleased to be encouraged by my teachers who said, you know, you should study more philosophy and continue on with this, which I did. And I ended up doing a PhD. I actually started uh, in Sweden at uh, Gothenburg University, but then I transferred over to the University of Michigan, hmm. and I did a PhD there where I studied uh, primarily ethics, and I wrote a dissertation about Kantian ethics, and so the sort of the history of ethics and ethical theory. Hmm. Uh, but then uh, in my first job, which was, uh, I was over in Germany in uh, Cologne, I started uh, doing more research on sort of uh, applied ethics issues, and I've always had an interest in uh, how sort of scientific developments, te technological developments, 
how they challenge uh, the traditional philosophical questions. So, you know, philosophers have always talked about things such as free will, uh, what is it to, to be a human being, you know, are we mm-hmm. essentially uh, mental, psychological beings, are we essentially animals, some kind of mix of the two, and uh, that those kinds of questions, they're, I feel like sort of every time period have their own scientific and technological developments, mm-hmm. where uh, we have to kind of reassess our previous views on these things. So in a, in a way, the same questions popping up about, you know, free will, moral responsibility, uh, you know, how should we treat each other, how, uh, what's a good life, what's the meaningful life. Mm. But, uh, I mean, today, for example, we have automation, we have robots, we have AI, uh, and that's, again, raising a lot of questions that, uh, you know, how should, maybe we should rethink what it is to live a meaningful life as a human being. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the history of ethics and then a little bit about the history of ethics in relation to technology. Sure. The history of ethics, I mean, in a way, yeah. uh, the way it began uh, was uh, in, well, obviously in classical antiquity with the ancient Greek, uh, Greeks and Romans. And mm-hmm. for them, the basic question of ethics was uh, how to live a good life. And uh, so uh, there were different conceptions of happiness. I mean, you had Aristotle with the idea that happiness is to kind of full, uh, fully uh, live out uh, and uh, realize uh, human potential to develop various virtues and excellences. And then, of course, there were other schools, such as the Epicurean school, where happiness, uh, tranquility of mind was the main uh, ideal. And uh, that was really the kind of the main question back then, like what virtues do you need to live a good human life and how can you uh, achieve happiness? Uh, later on, uh, during the Enlightenment, uh, you had a kind of switch where ethics became much more inspired by sort of legal reasoning and legal thinking, where, hmm. you know, what kind of responsibilities do you have? Uh, what kind of duties do you have? And you be held accountable for. Uh, and so also, I mean, in the philosophy, for example, of Immanuel Kant, you have ideas such as, you know, you should follow a principle that you would be willing to lay down as a universal law. Again, you have this kind of legal metaphors. Uh, you have the idea of you know, human dignity. I mean, that was already part of ancient thinking, but really now putting that in terms not of what is it to kind of live a dignified, good life, but rather how can you treat other people so that you respect their dignity. And, uh, hmm, yeah. and it really wasn't until the kind of enlightenment period in the history of ethics that people started saying, well, maybe we should treat everyone equally according to the same ethical standards. Uh, you also have, of course, uh, the utilitarian tradition uh, over in England, uh, Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, mm. uh, the idea that everyone should have a right to pursue happiness and the ethical uh, basic principle should be that we should kind of try to promote everyone's happiness mm, yeah. to the greatest extent and uh, human suffering. And, uh, I mean, I guess that, that was during the time of the Industrial Revolution, or well, that came a little bit later, but... Technology, in a way, uh, started maybe coming into the discussion then because, you know, already then you had a certain amount of automation, uh, people working in factories, uh, questions about what that did to, uh, you know, the, the, the human worker. And, uh, of course, uh, Marx came in, coming up later, a little bit later with the idea of alienation, etc. He was interested in the idea of machines. Uh, maybe humans become more like machines when they work in factories and putting things together, not really knowing 
you know, maybe they perform a very small task. They don't really know what the end result is going to be. They don't, uh, you know, they don't have any ownership, etc. That was according uh, to Marx a very alienating uh, process. When it comes to the kind of philosophy of technology that we see a lot of today, that's really very recent. I mean, so Heidegger, uh, hmm. well, basically a hundred years ago now, he started thinking about technology and had what is sometimes called the instrumental theory of technology. Okay. So the idea that, uh, well, all technologies are basically tools, they're instruments that we use for our human you know, goals and aims. And of course, this is, this is the t- uh, theory that you would typically gravitate toward as the first pass, so to speak, at how to think about technology. But uh, more recently, people have started to kind of question this idea. So uh, from two directions, I guess you could say. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, technology, it's not just a tool we use. It's also a uh, prism, if you will, through which you kind of experience reality. Mm. It mediates uh, our experience. And so, I mean, anything from, I mean, just wearing glasses and seeing better to, uh, you know, using social media to get information about the world or regular news sources. And that all affects what you know, what you don't know, how you think. Mm. Uh, and sometimes, uh, sort of implicitly without your knowing it, sometimes uh, you, you knowingly use certain technologies uh, to, to kind of being able to experience things uh, in a way that uh, you couldn't otherwise. I mean, again, think of glasses, a microscope, etc. Yeah. So technology also influences how we experience things and what we can do. Uh, so, if you have uh, well, modern technology, you, can, you know you can travel to space, you can go to the moon, you can do all sorts of things that you couldn't without technology. Uh, you can communicate with people in Missouri if you're in the Netherlands, uh, and so on. So, like it also, you shouldn't only think about it as a tool, but you can also expand the horizon of things we can do uh, and how we experience the world. So that's kind of one development in thinking about technology. Uh, not as a mere tool or instrument, but on the other hand, also people discussing ways in which people become attached to technologies. Uh, of course, I mean, there's the more trivial examples of people, like, say, like, giving them names, etc. But uh, now that we have robots and AI that mm. seemingly have a, uh, well, they appear to people to have a kind of agency uh, in the sense that uh, we talk about self-driving cars, let's say, as making decisions. You know, it's facing a fork in the road, and so the car has to decide to go left or right. Right, right. Uh, even experts talk about this, they talk about self-driving cars in these ways, not just lay people. Uh, we have humanoid robots. I mean, there's the case that is often discussed of Sophia, the mm. humanoid robot, yes. uh, created by uh, Hanson Robotics, the company. And... In 2017, Saudi Arabia declared that they had made Sophia into an honorary citizen. Yes. And that's really going beyond uh, treating technology as a mere tool. Uh, it's now treated as a kind of a social uh, presence uh, that uh, perhaps we should treat with some degree of motion, uh, possibly make into honorary citizens, etc. Well, you have a reasonably new book that's been released. It's called Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about the book and why you wrote it. Yeah, so that's Humans and Robots. I mean, I'm very interested in the way that human beings 
uh, react to or respond to uh, robots and technologies. Again, I mean, the case with Sophia, the robot, is a good case in point. People, uh, I mean, in a way, they're, you know, they're either sort of on team Sophia, meaning that they approve of this idea of having a robot that looks like a human, talk shows, talking uh, in front of the UN, etc. Mm. And others who say, well, this whole idea of a talking robot, it's really a kind of scam. It's a puppet. Uh, and this is misleading people about how far along AI uh, has looked. Yes. And so it's a really kind of polarizing uh, idea, this idea of building robots that look and act like humans. Some people think it's a great idea. Uh, some people say, you know, we will understand human beings better if we are able to create robots that look a little bit and act a little bit like human beings. Say this is a kind of you know, road to uh, delusion because, you know, AI is nowhere far near as far along as this uh, sometimes suggests. Mm. So quite interesting how people react to robots of different kinds. Uh, again, I mentioned the example of the self-driving car. Uh, people are excited about this. And this could be, uh, well, some people are hoping that they find a car more environmentally friendly, convenient in all sorts of ways. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, people also worry, you know, when there are accidents. And, of course, uh, starting in 2016, people have been uh, killed in self-driving cars. Uh, in 2018, it for the first time happened that someone was hit by one, an experimental self-driving car in Arizona. And uh, then the question arises, like, okay, so who should be held responsible if there is such an uh, accident? Mm. Uh, the person in the car might say, you know, I wasn't driving. Yeah. The car was it, self-driving, so I shouldn't be held responsible. Uh, the uh, maker of the car might say, well, okay, so we made the car, but you bought it and you're using it, so you take responsibility. <laughs> right. uh, so you get kind of a... In a, a situation where the responsibility is sort of passed around like a hot potato. <laughs> and uh, so we have this new kind of problems that uh, we didn't seem to have before with things like responsibility, questions about how we should treat robots. And it's interesting how, I mean, these are all very human questions that are raised in the context of robots and robotics. And so that's what I wanted to kind of uh, discuss in this book and I discuss, on the one hand, robots that, you know, like self-driving cars. I mean, it, they don't look like humans. They don't act like humans. Uh, and you have, uh, I mean, vacuum cleaning robots, lawnmower robots, military robots. They don't look like humans at all. But on the other hand, you do also have robots that, uh, well, I mean, Sophia was one example, but there are others, too, that are both made to look like humans and that people respond to uh, to some extent, as if they are humans. Mm, yeah. And that's really fascinating. And that raises questions such as, uh, you know, will there ever be a time where we should treat these robots with some degree of moral consideration? Or is that always going to be uh, ruled out as a bad idea? Hmm. I had a conversation with a gentleman named, named uh, David Gunkel, who you may be familiar with. And yes, I, 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 I think that we're kind of in the same groups in on Twitter and I, I I like to follow all of you guys but uh, he's very interesting and he wrote a book called Robot Rights that sort of brings up some of these ideas is your book in any way related to uh, to some of the things that David speaks about oh absolutely so yeah so he's a friend of mine and a colleague and uh, I very much respect his work uh, I guess I would maybe disagree partly with it uh, although I do agree with him that we should take seriously uh, the issue of uh, you know, when uh, and if and if so why robots should ever have rights. Mm. Uh, I guess some, some of his work seems to treat this 
actual whether the robot it's itself or him or herself, however you want to put it, <laughs> uh, sort of uh, has a kind of moral status uh, and deserves to be treated with more consideration. At least, the, well, the first three kind of parts of his book discuss that question. Mm-hmm. But I think at this stage, it seems better to ask, could we ever do treat other human beings sort of wrongly by mistreating robots that maybe look like them? Uh, I mean, an example I, I used, uh, often like to use when I talk about this is that suppose, you know, I make a robot that looks like you. Mm-hmm. Then I'm treating that robot, kicking it or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it would seem that you would feel attacked. Uh, and so any robot that you make that sort of looks like a human being, you're going to be able to find people that kind of look a little bit like that, that robot and that would possibly feel that they're being attacked mm-hmm. if we don't treat well. So that kind of reason... In order to respect other human beings, maybe we shouldn't treat robots that look like human beings, uh, you know, in a disrespectful sort of way. But uh, the idea that the robot itself would be uh, sort of deserving of some sort of moral status and rights, then we start moving much more into sort of science fiction. And, of course, in science fiction, we do take seriously this idea. I mean, let's say that the human characters in Star Wars would mistreat, let's say, you know, C-3PO or R2-D2. <laughs> right. uh, I think in the, in the context of the fiction, we probably wouldn't think that that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's also, I think, because we attribute, I mean, personalities to those robots. We think that they can communicate with humans uh, in the, uh, you know, in the fiction, in a, in a human-like way. Uh, but, you know, the ro- robots that we have in reality, uh, I mean, okay, in a way, we do attribute some kind of personality to them. Uh, and uh, there are interesting cases. I mean, for example, some military robots that have been given military funerals when they have been destroyed because the soldiers have become so attached to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have uh, other soldiers wanting to give medals of honor to a certain mil- military robot and, and making claims such as, you know, this robot had a personality of his own. You know, are those the kinds of things that we would also accept upon reflection? Or uh, is it rather the case that we maybe are two minds about this? I mean, so our um, reflective mind, our reason might tell us that, well, you know, it's, it's, it's just a machine. It's not really something with a personality. But then maybe we might be attached to the robot. We might uh, respond to it as if it is a person of a sort. So, uh, that, well, this happens to be another topic that I spend quite a bit of in my book this tendency that we have as human beings to want to read the minds of others. And so if I'm talking with a human being, I'm always kind of thinking that they must be thinking and feeling certain things, and I'm kind of predicting where the conversation is going to go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if they smile, I think they're happy. If they, <laughs> you know, frown, I think they're not, etc. And that's a kind of hardwired uh, impulse that we have to try to read the minds of others. So if you may put like a human face on it and you make the robot smile, instinctively you're going to think that the robot is happy. Uh, even if you, uh, the rational part of your mind tells you that, well, you know, just a robot that's hmm. designed right. to, to look like it's happy. And uh, I think this is another place where maybe David is going to uh, have, uh, he also kind of homes in on that aspect of human-robot interaction. And I think he thinks, I mean, if we start treating robots as if they have a moral status and uh, they should have rights, then, well, maybe 
you know, why don't we embrace it? Why not endorse it? Let's think that we maybe should take this idea seriously. And uh, where I am more interested in asking the question, well, you know, what does it do to our relation to other human beings? Mm. And uh, how we, uh, whether or not we're respecting them. That would be kind of a, a difference between the way we're approaching these things, although we're interested in exactly the same topics. Okay. What would you say about the relationship of Hollywood and the media portrayal of robotics and AI, for example? I, I think you mentioned earlier that AI, and I would add robotics as well, are nowhere nearly as far along as many people might assume that they are because of the way that they're portrayed in the media and in film. If you actually go into the laboratory, oftentimes you'll laugh at how clumsy and silly the robots are and how how many mistakes uh, uh, the technology actually still has in it. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about media portrayal and then the way people intuit things. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, in the me- in, uh, in Hollywood movies, you see robots that are able to uh, perform well across wide ranges of circumstances. So, like, you know, in one scene, maybe C-3PO is having a conversation, and the next, you know, he's, uh, well, I don't know if he's ever driving one of the spaceships, but, you know, you can easily imagine that sort of thing. Sure. And the next, they're fighting a battle. But re- real-world robots tend to be really good at uh, specific tasks mm-hmm. in controlled environments and really bad at anything else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, so peop- a lot of people have seen these very impressive videos of robots doing backflips, uh, you know, running up the stairs, uh, walking in the, in the woods, etc. But uh, you can bet that most of those robots, uh, they, that's the only thing they can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have the backflipping robot and you ask it to do anything else, it's not going to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, I think it's maybe the biggest difference between the robots that we see in films and in science fiction and, and real robots. That, 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 I mean, they sometimes outperform human beings at particular tasks, but uh, human beings so far, and presumably for a long time, are going to outperform the robots in terms of flexibility, uh, ability to do different things in different situations, to mm-hmm. improvise. Uh, so... Uh, even though, like, like the backflipping robot, or the, I mean, there's another video of a robot dog that can run on a treadmill, they can run up the stairs, and uh, actually some of the engineers are kicking the robot dog in the video, and it, it stabilizes itself. Uh, that looks very impressive. Uh, that's probably the only thing that that particular robot can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, I mean, this also means that. If you want a robot to function well, let's say in a logistics warehouse or a self-driving car on the road, you have to redesign or design the environment so that it becomes robot-friendly. Uh, I mean, there was a recent uh, story in the news about some hackers showing that if you take a uh, road sign saying that the speed limit is 35, and then sort of of the three, uh, you kind of draw a... Uh, a, a line so that it looks like the, the the middle part of the three is like a little funny misshape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Humans would still see that as saying three at 35. Mm-hmm. But uh, a Tesla car that was sort of tested against this thought it was an eight all of a sudden. Oh. And so, uh, so the Tesla uh, Model S has the autopilot feature. And so they were able to make the Tesla accelerate up until 85 uh, uh, by just drawing that line that no human would think but wow. artificial intelligence in the car saw it. And mm. So uh, AI and robots, it can be really good 
and really smart at specific tasks, but really dumb and really incompetent. Uh, you know, the situation a little bit. And this can also lead to situations where, you know, if you want a, a well-working, uh, let's again go back to the case of the logistics uh, robots in warehouses, that can be also quite impressive. Then you have to design the uh, interior of that uh, warehouse so that it's robot-friendly, but of course that make, might not make it very nice for the humans who yeah. work there. Yeah. Uh, and so... I guess the more we put robots into different roles and different, uh, you know, performing different tasks in society, we do face this kind of, uh, uh, well, if we want to make that work well, we're going to have to redesign the environment uh, so that it's robot-friendly, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be human-friendly and nice for us. So, uh, sometimes we're going to have this kind of trade-off, so maybe the robots will provide some benefit then we have to uh, compromise and adjust ourselves to uh, the robots in order to get those. Mm. And so this is a sort of another a running theme in, in the book that I am uh, just publishing. Uh, we have this choice that for a lot of robots, if you want to get uh, anything out of them, then we might need to adjust ourselves to them. Uh, that is not always going to be something that's very attractive to us. Mm. Uh, again, I mean, uh, if you take uh, the traffic system that we have, uh, so a self-driving car could perform very well on the highway, uh, but you know if you, you go to the middle of Amsterdam to, to take a Dutch example, where I'm located in the Netherlands, you know there's lots of bikes everywhere, uh, old sort of uh, old European types of uh, narrow streets, very difficult uh, to navigate for a self-driving car. So if you want self-driving cars in Amsterdam, you would have to kind of rebuild the city, uh, but of course no humans would like that. So that's. Uh, bit of a, a trade-off situation that we're going to be facing more and more as we learn more robots and AI. All right, that's a good place for us to take a little break. My guest tonight, Dr. Sven Nyholm. He is a professor at uh, Utrecht University. That is in the Netherlands. And, um, yeah, back with Dr. Nyholm in just a few minutes. Let's hear one from uh, our featured musicians of the evening. In the meantime, this is one from Yin Yin. I will mention uh, Dr. Nyholm, the best way to get in touch with him, or if you want to follow his work, you can do that on the web. Just go to Twitter, and he is at Sven, S-V-E-N-N-Y-H-O-L-M. That's Sven Nyholm, S-V-E-N-N-Y-H-O-L-M. Very easy to find on Twitter. That's the best way to uh, communicate with, uh, with a good doctor. All right, once again, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, one from Yin Yin. Then we'll get back to my conversation with Dr. Sven Nyholm.
right, there's another one from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Yin Yin. I like it. Good stuff from the Netherlands. We got more good stuff from the Netherlands with our guest this evening. His name is Dr. Sven Nyholm. You can find him on the web at Twitter at Sven Nyholm. And of course, you can connect with him through my website as well, right there on the front page. There's a big picture of his recently released book called Humans and Robots. And uh, you can also directly uh, connect up with his with his Twitter feed from there as well, okay? All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My guest is Dr. Sven Nyholm. We'll get back to my conversation with Dr. Nyholm right now. Yeah, I think, you know, up until very recently, as you mentioned, robots have primarily been relegated to controlled, designed environments. And, and now we're approaching a time where we have robots navigating freely in the world and interacting with humans and animals and and things like that this seems to me to be a a, a sort of a, a line that's that's being crossed there yeah and uh most robots that are useful so far yet do that i mean they're not out in the wild so to speak but uh the self-driving car that's something that's being at least experimented with in traffic uh out in the world so to speak and uh, you have, uh, I mean, there's some experimentation on, at least on university campuses with, for example, delivery robots. Uh, the robot might deliver a pizza or mail or packages or whatever. Uh, you have maybe uh, the idea of delivery drones, so flying in the air, delivering things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so anytime you sort of let the robot out of the laboratory or out of the controlled environment, you face all kinds of challenges. And... Tonight, uh, technical university with lots of engineers, and uh, in well, not all of them, but a lot of them, they think about small technical problems and you know, with small solutions, and how can you make you know, the room to the other, let's say, because uh, uh, has a lot of people in it. You also have to start thinking about the social so that uh, people behave in unexpected, unpredictable ways. They don't follow rules, um, and they uh, maybe don't want the things that you designed the robots to do, and that all can create uh, new kinds of challenges that maybe if I was an engineer designing a robot to solve a particular task, I didn't take into account. I mean, uh, to again talk about the self-driving cars case, human beings, we tend to break uh, traffic rules, we speed, we uh, drive aggressively, we uh, accelerate, sometimes not very gently, or brake not very gently, but the self-driving car, at least for, for now, is uh, an attempt to create a more sort of optimized type of driving. So you would have a robot that always follows the speed limit, uh, that uh, accelerates gently, brakes gently, uh, drives uh, you know, at, at a safe distance from other cars, etc. And if you take that kind of driving and you put it together with human driving, you, you, you have a kind of compatibility problem. And uh, a lot of the minor accidents that have, uh, well, including also the, the major accidents, but a lot of the accidents that have happened with self-driving cars uh, are due to a kind of mismatch between the driving styles of humans and the driving styles of self-driving cars. Hmm. And so you get this kind of question. So again, so should we adjust the self-driving cars to the humans by making them, uh, you know, speed, uh, disobey various traffic rules, making them drive aggressively? And you do have people that argue that, yes, this is a good idea. Uh, but then again, then you would uh, counteract this goal of creating a safer 
more environmentally friendly, uh, more optimized kind of driving. Uh, and if you want a self-driving car that drives like a human, in a way, you can just have a human do the driving. You don't want a robot uh, AI system to do it. Uh, so uh, the other option that would be to try to adjust human driving to self-driving cars. And there are ways in which you can do it. I mean, you could uh, you could put in speed uh, limiting technology into the car so that it's impossible to speed. I mean, some trucks have this. Mm-hmm. You could put in alcohol locks so that, uh, at, at the very least, everyone is always sober when they're driving. Yeah. Uh, you could, uh, I guess, uh, you know, punish people more severely, even more severely if they cause an accident. And that, in that, in those ways, make people more like robots in their driving. Uh, but we, we're, we're going to have to do something in order to kind of adjust human driving and self-driving car, robotic driving to each other. At least during the long period that uh, a lot of experts foresee where there would be both kinds of cars on the road. It's like even if we eventually transition to only having robotic self-driving cars, uh, there's still going to be a very long period where people are still, you know, they can't afford to buy a new car. They want to use the family car. Mm-hmm. Maybe they buy a car with some degree of automation, but uh, not full automation. And so you have of uh, cars on the road uh, with more or less automation, uh, with maybe incompatible types of uh, gear and programming in them. And it might be a little bit chaotic. <laughs> and, uh, even if you then maybe, you know, you only have self-driving cars, that's going to be a long period of uh, mixed traffic before we get to that point. You've talked a little bit about the ethics of accidents and the algorithms that are used in self-driving cars that have to make a decision at some point. Perhaps you could talk about the trolley problem and how that might apply to self-driving cars. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, the trolley problem is a philosophical thought experiment that uh, was, uh, I guess, created in 1967, if I remember correctly, by a philosopher called Flippa Foot. And so she imagined a scenario where there's a uh, train going around the train tracks and then uh, uh, there's a guy standing next to a switch and he can, he can see that if he, if he doesn't do anything, uh, the train is going to hit by people who are on the track. But he can pull the switch and send the train off. But uh, sadly, there's one person there. And so in order to save the five, you'd have to redirect the, the trolley uh, train uh, onto the sidetrack. And, and people are asked, you know, what do you do with? A lot of people say yes. And then in order to kind of tease out uh, saving the many uh, by sacrificing the few, philosophers have come up with lots of different variations on the theme. Mm-hmm. There's one variation where rather than redirecting the, the train onto the sidetrack, you have to push someone in front of the train, a, a very heavy, large person, so that uh, the, the heavy weight of this person would sort of set off the automatic uh, brakes of the, of the train. The five on the tracks would be saved that way, but you, now you have to physically push on the train. So now a lot of people say you shouldn't do it. And then philosophers since then have kind of come up with like various different versions of this case. And that's been treated up until recently as a kind of purely intellectual exercise. It's going to tease out people's moral intuitions. Mm. But then uh, about five years ago, people started saying, oh, now we actually have a kind of real-world trolley problem uh, Right. that we're facing, namely uh, self-driving cars sometimes will be uh, driving into scenarios where it's obvious to them that they, they can't simply stop because they're driving too fast. Maybe there's something wrong with the brakes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if they go straight, let's say maybe there are five people in the road. If they go on onto the sidewalk, maybe there's one there. Uh, so, you know, so what should 
self-driving car be programmed to do. Yes. Uh, or, you know, in another version of the case, you might have, let's say, one person on the street, five people in the self car. Uh, if the car is going straight, it's going to hit up one person. It's off the road. Uh, it's going to go up a cliff or something like that. Mm, yeah. So you can really very easily come up with sort of scenarios that, uh, I mean, of course, a lot of them are very unrealistic, but some of them might possibly more be more realistic. I and mean, so... The self-driving car might have a choice between uh, crashing into another car or going off the road, thus risking things for the person in the car. So there's a question, so, you know, should the car always uh, prioritize the safety of the, whoever's in the car or should it sometimes try to detect whether the situation calls, uh, you know, is there a way of minimizing overall harm, which might mean that the people in the car will be sacrificed. So a lot of people have been saying, Oh, okay, so now we actually have a kind of real-world trolley problem to deal with. And, uh, well, in some of my research, and part of this because so many people had been saying that, I was asking myself, well, is it really like the trolley problem? And are the issues that were discussed in the trolley problem literature really the ones we should be focusing on? And at the very least, there are some interesting sort of disanalogies uh, between these different cases. So the philosophical thought experiment, for example, we're typically asked to only focus on a very small set of uh, aspects and scenario. You know, just focus on the fact that there are five people on the tracks. Uh, the way to save the five is to redirect the, the, the train onto a side track. There's one person there. Set everything else aside and make a decision. We're asked, you know, when we're doing this in a kind of philosophy classroom. But in the real world, a real life, uh, I mean, we should take as many considerations as possible into, into consideration. Uh, and not just say, uh, let, let's just focus on a small subset of possible relevant facts. Uh, so that's sort of one big key difference. Another is that I, mean, I actually taught a class uh, as early as a couple of days ago uh, where I brought up the trolley problem because it has a nice sort of pedagogical value. Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. it always happens that a student raises their hand and says, well, won't I go to jail if <laughs> I kill uh, you know, this other person or just say the five? And then in the philosophy classroom, you always say, well, let's let's set questions about legal and moral responsibility aside, and let's just think about, you know, what you should do in this scenario. Uh, but, you know, if you're thinking about the real-world ethics of self-driving cars, you can't set uh, responsibility aside to think about it, uh, because that's obviously whenever there's a car accident dead, it's always uh, when people die, there's an investigation. There's always a question uh, of whose fault it was, if anyone's fault, uh, uh, if it was anyone's fault, uh, there's a question of should anyone be punished, held responsible for this. That's another thing that kind of clashes a little bit with the way that we use this uh, idea in philosophy classrooms. A third thing, in the trolley problem uh, example, you assume that you know uh, all the facts with certainty. So you know that if I push the large person in front of the train, let's say, I know that the fine. Uh, or if I redirect the, the train with the switch in the other example, I know again that I can say five. I know I have to sacrifice one. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to uh, self-driving cars and these hypothetical scenarios that they might be facing, there's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. And so we have to make risk assessments and probability assessments. Uh, and we uh, basically are planning for a scenario that may or may not and that's another kind of relevant difference, this uh, important role and certainty and risk in real life as opposed to in a philosophical thought experiment. I mean, that's not to say that the trolley problems of philosophy is wholly irrelevant, 
there are lots of interesting uh, things that have come out of that discussion. But it is just to say that we should be a little bit more careful than some, uh, both academics and journalists have been, before we say, oh, just like the trolley problem, uh, because there are obviously many more complications and complexities in real uh, life than in a philosophical thought experiment. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about human enhancement. This is becoming something that yeah. uh, is bringing up a lot of questions as well. The idea that that we can do things with technology to either enhance our own bodies, you know, change them significantly. How does that play into the work that you that you do? Yeah, I that's something I've done uh I'm not certain I work on as well. So uh, one interesting thing about human enhancement is that, uh, I mean, in, in real life, there's not a, there are people who do what they call biohacking, mm, that, yeah, uh, use yeah. their own bodies as kind of, uh, you know, experimental uh, tools. They're trying to come up with ways of uh, uh, enhance themselves. But in terms of more research, uh, things that could possibly be used as enhancements are typically discovered as the kind of side effects uh, of other things. And so uh, take something that I looked at uh, quite a bit in my own research, namely what's called deep brain stimulation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, Parkinson's patients, for example, and other people with uh, different kinds of uh, problems, uh, neurological problems, uh, have sometimes uh, electrodes implanted into their brain. Okay. There's a sort of a current that stimulates certain brain loops. Uh, this can be amazing. I mean, so a person with Parkinson's can regain control over their uh, tremors and uh, kind of walk fluently and uh, talk fluently, etc. When electric current is turned on and the brain stimulation is working properly. Uh, in some people, though, uh, this has interesting side effects. Uh, and those side effects range from uh, very positive, sometimes comical, to uh, scary and uh, you know, the opposite of comical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so there was one patient uh, who found that their memory had been improved with the deep brain stimulation. Mm-hmm. Another patient, uh, the, uh, a Dutch patient, uh, felt much happier with, with the brain stimulation turned on. I mean, they were not being treated for depression. They were, I think they were being treated for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, actually, in that particular case, uh, the thing that they were trying to treat with, uh, with the deep brain stimulation it wasn't helping, uh, but the person felt much happier. And so uh, she said to her doctor, you know, leave it on because I feel so much happier now. But the doctor in that case said, no, I'm going to turn turn this off because, you know, it didn't help uh, for what we were trying to treat. It just made you happier. And I'm, I, as a doctor, am not in the business of making you happier. <laughs> so that was an interesting case where uh, you saw kind of an, a certain kind of enhancement as a side effect, but the treatment that was aimed at did not uh, happen. Uh, another example, and I have a friend, uh, Brian Earp and uh, Julie Tavalescu, uh, they just uh, published a book about uh, what they call love enhancement. Mm, yeah. So a lot of uh, drugs that are used for other things, I mean, for example, uh, antidepressant and, uh, drugs and uh, drugs such as the ones that are used maybe to treat uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, they also affect how we feel about the people around us. And also, uh, they can make us more trusting. They can make us, they can open us up to uh, things that we wouldn't otherwise be willing to do to talk about certain topics, let's say, that we wouldn't otherwise be willing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can change our emotions. And this 
to actually be used, uh, Urban Savalescu argue, to maybe improve human relationships. Uh, so maybe uh, there could be a kind of love enhancement. And that's, again, that's a case where any development that we've seen that has been a kind of a side effect or discovered by accident when people have kind of been uh, trying to come up with treatments for other things. Uh, so I've been quite interested in that topic too. And the question of, uh, let's say that we actually able to develop very uh, precise ways of uh, tuning our emotions, so a little bit as if we, uh, you know, on a stereo, you know, have different dials, you can change the, the treble and the bass, etc. So that you can change the settings in your emotional life to fit your ideas of what you want. It's interesting. I mean, that, again, goes in a, a little bit in the direction of science fiction, but we can certainly influence how people feel in a more, you know, in a less precise way. You can start wondering then, uh, if I find that my uh, romantic partner, uh, I, I didn't know beforehand that they were using these love enhancement drugs, uh, uh, but it, I learned one day that indeed they are. Before they started using them, uh, they couldn't really make themselves uh, feel attached to me. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of people would find that to be sort of bad news. Mm. Uh, they What they want is something what they can think of as authentic. Mm, yeah. uh, of course, this raises the question of what exactly is meant by authentic love. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe in some cases, inauthentic love would be better than no love, <laughs> uh, you know, broken marriage, etc., but uh, we can also ask this question of, okay, so is this uh, all that we're wanting uh, out of, let's say, uh, love or happiness? Do we want it to be caused by, let's say, brain stimulation technology or a uh, some dr- love drug or a hormone treatment? Or do we also care about the causes? Do we want it to be, to be the case that our partners love us you know, because we are the way we are, we are who we are? Uh, do we want happiness to depend on having achieved something uh, that we think uh, makes us worthy of happiness? Uh, so I think that's one of the very interesting thing that comes up when we start thinking about technological ways of changing how we feel, how we act. Uh, we do have a lot of ideas about you know what we sh- what we deserve or what what, we, what what our behavior makes us makes us worthy of. And uh, we care about why other people think uh, what they think about us. Uh, is it because they have true beliefs about us, because they know us, or is, it because, or is it because we were able to fool them, or because they are under the influence of some drug? I think that raises sort of deep questions about what we truly care about and value in our own lives, but also in our relationships with the people around us. Hmm. You've addressed the idea of sexual robots and even love perhaps, between humans and robots. Could you expand on that a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, there's an interesting development uh, in the world of robotics, namely the, the attempt to build uh, what are sometimes called sex robots. Uh, and uh, one very interesting development is that so there are at least three companies that have been sort of in the news and that uh, whenever there's a new story about sex robots, you hear about them. Uh, one company has made a robot that they call Roxy, spelled with three X's. <laughs> Another has made a robot that they call Harmony. Uh, and a third has made a robot that they call Samantha. And even though these were developed as sex robots for sexual purposes primarily, uh, there's been a kind of interesting development that for all of them, uh, the companies behind them are starting to suggest, well, maybe this could be more uh, than uh, something that's there for sex. Maybe it could also be something that could, uh, a robot that could be 
a romantic partner, a friend. Hmm. Uh, I mean, Roxy, uh, the website on which you can read about that robot is called True Compendium. Hmm. Uh, you can read there that uh, this robot supposedly can know your name, can get to know you, can get to like you and be a true friend. Uh, the robot uh, Harmony is also supposed to be, uh, you know, emotionally engaging with the users, so it's a kind of bond. And, of course, the people in this robot, they're studying human psychology and what we know about what kinds of uh, buttons you can push to make people feel attached to other human beings and trying to create sort of the robotic equivalent of that. And so it raises the question of whether, uh, on the one hand, if there's something unethical about creating a robot that would maybe lead people to think that the robot cares about them. Mm. Uh, uh, I mean, this could be deceptive. It could be uh, thought to take advantage of sort of vulnerable, lonely people. Uh, it could be thought to maybe uh, make people, uh, if you say, let's say, someone gets very attached to such a robot uh, and maybe they mostly interact with it, uh, then they might not get any training in uh, having human relationships of a kind of an intimate, romantic kind. And so they become, become sort of less able, perhaps, to have human uh, romantic relationships. That's, those are some worries that you might have. On the other hand, you might also ask, okay, could there be a different where uh, the idea of human-robot love could make sense? Hmm. And that, again, I think, raises the kind of questions that we mentioned just a moment ago when we talked about love enhancement. I mean, so what do we really want or value in love, uh, and could you uh, achieve those things with a robot? And uh, you can ask, for example, uh, what commonly... Uh, associated uh, ideas that are associated with love. Uh, people talk about things such as being a good match, for example. Yeah. So it should be the case that, uh, well, uh, romantic partners, they, uh, you know, match for the other, and the other is also a good match for him or her. And so uh, you can make a robot that's sort of custom-made to fit your taste and, and your likes and dislikes. Uh, but this ideal of having a good match would also seem to suggest that you know you should be a good match for the robot. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, one kind of challenge. Uh, another idea would be that uh, you know you uh, when we value human relationships, we often think that there's a kind of commitment there, and uh, that brings up the idea of sort of free choice, because even though you maybe you want. Uh, your uh, partner, your, your lover, to uh, you know, have certain feelings for you. You also want them maybe to commit to you, and you think that it's possible for them to do otherwise. So, if you have something like a marriage ceremony, and you you know the person to be your lawfully wedded husband or wife, whatever, uh, there there seems to be an element of choice there. And if you really thought that the person you're marrying had some sort of compulsion and they couldn't do otherwise, uh, and they 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 will stick with you too, uh, like no matter what, slavishly devoted to you, that might start looking quite different than what you are looking for when you're looking for someone to commit to you. And uh, so they would seem that the idea of a relationship involves the idea of choice. And so you might ask, could a sex robot that's supposed to love you, could it have a choice? Could it be that the sex robot might choose? Hmm. Say, no, I'm not ready to commit. Or, (laughs) yeah, I could do otherwise, but I will commit. I mean, <laughs> that sounds, again, like a crazy idea. But huh. so you see that when you start thinking about these things that we value in the human case, uh, it might start looking unrealistic to think that the robot could play that role of a 
of a, of a, of a part, romantic partner in the, in the same way that a human could, because it really requires uh, a capacity for choice, uh, the idea that, that you could be a better or worse match for someone else. And uh, so I, I find that really fascinating. So yeah, that's certainly something I've been thinking about when I think about human robots and then the human-robot interaction in the book as well. All right, there we go. That's another good place to take a break here. You listen to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. My guest tonight is Dr. Sven Nyholm, Assistant Professor of Ethics at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. You can find him online at Sven Nyholm on Twitter. And if you just want to click over there to my site, there's a big image of his new book that's called Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. It's a, a wonderful book, and you can get a look at it on the front page of my website there, and if you click on it, it'll take you right over to, over to Sven. All right, we're going to take a little break here, and I'll come back with the final 25 minutes or so of my interview with Dr. Sven Nyholm. In the meantime, we're going to hear one from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called Yin Yin, and this is called Sui Ya. All right, it's Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, back in a few minutes.
All right, another one from Yin Yin. Digging the music tonight. Hope you're liking it as well. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right, it's just about uh, 20 minutes after midnight now on the 2nd of June, 2020. You've joined me right in the middle of an interview that I recorded just a little bit ago with uh, Dr. Sven Nyholm from Utrecht University in the Netherlands. We are talking about uh, artificial intelligence and robotics and technology in general and some of the moral, ethical implications of such technology. Uh, Dr. Nyholm has a brand new book. It's called Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. You can find information about him on the web at Sven Nyholm on Twitter. And you can also link directly to him from my site at MikeHagan.com. All right. uh, We're on the web streaming tonight at www.kopn.org. Appreciate you all joining me. And uh, let's get back to our interview now with Dr. Sven Nyholm. Yeah, one of the things that I had on my list here to talk with you about was the thoughts yeah. and and images in our minds about robots uh, and what they tell us about ourselves and what what it is to be human. You've talked about that a little bit. Maybe you could yeah. uh, say a few words to that. Yeah, so um, there is, for example, a Japanese a robotics researcher, um, and uh, I think, if I remember correctly, his name is Hiroshi Ishiguro. Mm-hmm. And he is creating uh, robots that look like humans. I mean, one of them is a robotic copy of himself. He has also created a uh, robot that looks like a human female called Erika. And uh, when people ask him, why are you creating these human-like robots? Uh, one of the things he tends to say is that, uh, well, we, we humans can understand ourselves better uh, if we can create robots that look like us. Uh, again, uh, the robot Sophia, which is made to look like uh, humans as well, it, they too say that we can understand human beings better if we create robots that are like humans. And so I think that we, in a way, we project ideas about ourselves onto these robots that we create, at, at, at least if those robots are robots that are meant to be like humans. Of course, it's like a, uh, you know, a bomb disposal robot or a self-driving car or a lawnmower, or a you know a vacuum cleaner. Uh, those are not going to look like humans. They're not going to act like humans, and so they're not going to be kind of a mirror for humans to look into. Uh, but I do think that there is a deep fascination that a lot of people share with the idea of creating a robot that's like a human. And uh, a lot of people find it scary, and sometimes people call about what, uh, talk about what they call the uncanny valley. Mm. This is the idea that if a robot is kind of like a human, but not really, uh, that's eerie, and that uh, gives rise to a kind of a, a very strange feeling of discomfort. It's familiar, yet it's, it's alien, it's, it's strange at the same time. So uh, some people do research about you know, how can we create human-like robots that are clearly not human, but they're somewhat human-like, but that don't give rise to that uh, eerie uh, feeling that's associated with this idea of the uncanny valley. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you have mixed emotions, I think, about the idea of humanoid robots in most people, and uh, it doesn't seem possible to kind of stop uh, people from wanting and trying to create robots. And so, in a way, I think we have to try to reckon with that uh, development and think about, you know, what, how should we react to this? Uh, of course, you can ban the... I mean, some people say we should ban the uh, creation of sex robots. There's 
there's a campaign against humanoid sex robots. It's called the campaign against sex robots. And they <laughs> say, for example, that it should be uh, forbidden to create uh, robots that look like humans and are made for sexual purposes. But uh, it's going to be very hard to manage to ban that because if you have robots that are not created for sexual purposes, the idea of having sex with them seems to be something that comes up in <laughs> people's minds. I mean, in a lot of movies, uh, and and, and uh, TV series and so on, where there are humanoid robots that are not made for sexual purposes. That's the sort of thing. I mean, it's the, the movie Ex Machina, for example, or Fantastic. the TV series, yeah. uh, I think yeah. it's called Real Humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, in both of those, you have robots created for other purposes, but the human characters in them, they want to have sex with these robots. Yeah. And uh, I think that's going to be something you see. I mean, there's even a robot that doesn't look very much like a human. It's called Pepper. It looks a little bit like a, uh, I don't know, a a mix between an alien or something like that. But the instruction manual says, you know, don't try to have sex with this robot. <laughs> uh, so there is this attraction to, uh, uh, mixed feelings about, and fascination with, I think, the idea of humanoid robots, humans that look and act like, uh, look and act like humans. And so that's something that we're going to have to deal with as a society, I think. Okay. All right, let's switch gears here a little bit. I've got a few more questions for you. We haven't talked much about military applications and about how this affects the way we look at at ethics, for for example, the ethics of war or the ethics of courage, these types of things. Could you talk a little bit about military applications of AI and robotics and how... Uh, how this plays out in the ethical field. I think that many of these technologies are actually utilized perhaps initially uh, in the military sphere to begin with before they filter down into the in, into the public sort of sphere. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is something, again, where people, uh, a lot of people are arguing for uh, banning certain kinds of robots, uh, so uh, what, are, what are sometimes called uh, lethal autonomous weapons systems, Yes. Uh, where the idea is that the robot or, or the AI technology would then select their targets and kill human beings. Uh, and that's something that, uh, I mean, a lot of high-profile people, both academics and uh, others, such as Elon Musk and Tesla and others like that, uh, are arguing that these should be banned and, and banned and forbidden, uh, and that it's important to always uh, retain uh, what they call meaningful human control over mm-hmm. any uh, military technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, when people talk about this, one of the things that they sometimes say is that uh, in war, uh, it can be just uh, for human beings to kill other human beings. You know, the, uh, what some philosophers call the moral equality of different combatants, so that uh, in a war situation scenario, you know, it's, it's understood that you you might get killed and that you might uh, kill others, but there has to be a human that takes responsibility for this, and there has to be sort of a human on the other side. But if one side of the conflict starts introducing not but or human uh, people that try and kill other humans, but rather robots that take over that job, mm. then uh, that uh, fundamentally changes the idea of a uh, military conflict because uh, what if someone is killed and the, they have been selected uh, as a target by an autonomous system? Again, you get this problem of possible responsibility gap yeah, uh, where yeah. people might start saying, well, I wasn't responsible because the, the, the target was selected by a machine. I mean, the military setting in a way uh, makes it a little bit easier to deal with these responsibility issues just because it's such a structured 
part of human life. I mean, like the military has a very uh, clear uh, sort of uh, hierarchy where some people have what is called command responsibility over others. So uh, if soldiers do things, uh, then sometimes commanders are held responsible because they have the ultimate responsibility. And uh, I think you can see how we could use some of that uh, machinery from uh, you know, theories of uh, command responsibility in the case uh, in the domain of uh, military robotics. So, if a, a, role, a human commander uh, deploys a, a lethal autonomous weapon system and that system kills a human being, you could still have the commander, I think, be responsible because there's this command structure in the in the in the, in the organization. I mean, you couldn't really imagine, I think, uh, a military robot that's sort of operating on its own. It's always going to be part of a, a team. So even if you did have uh, some sort of high degree of functional autonomy, meaning that it can operate on its own for certain periods of time, there are always going to be humans who decide to use those, who maybe decide to discontinue the use of bots, and who maybe try to update them and, and change their settings, etc., uh, based on uh, you know how they think that they perform in the in the in the in the field, so to speak. So I, I worry maybe a little bit less about uh, responsibility issues than some, than some others uh, looking at the ethics do. I do think that there is an interesting question of whether it should ever be permitted to have a robot uh, that's uh, designed to kill human beings. Uh, and some people make an interesting uh, comparison here with the case of the self-driving car, because the self-driving car will predictably sometimes kill human beings. Uh, but that's a side effect, not intended, Mm. Uh, but merely predicted. So, uh, well, they have already killed humans. They have died inside of self-driving cars, and they've been hit by self-driving cars. Uh, but, of course, none of this was intentional. Uh, the intention is to create a safer type of car where fewer people will be killed, and uh, there will be some accident scenarios. So that's quite different than creating a robot that's specifically designed to kill humans. And uh, certainly in a lot yeah. of common sense, ethical thinking and also in some doctrines that are you know, widely discussed in philosophy, theology, etc. There's a double effect so, uh, where people say it's sometimes okay to hinder others if it's a, it's a side effect that you didn't intend uh, because you were trying to pursue some good aim, you were trying to save someone's life, you were trying to save... Um, uh, you know, you're trying to achieve something good, and then, uh, you know, you couldn't but uh, accidentally kill someone on the bed. You would, let's say they're driving really fast to get to the, you know, to the hospital, and someone gets in front of your car, and you accidentally kill someone. That, that, that's, that's a side effect that could happen if you drive really fast with a car. Mm. But if you create a robot, or you have a human being who just, whose main aim or main goal it is to kill <laughs> others, then... You can't say that, oh, it's merely an, uh, a foreseen side effect. It's merely something that we knew might happen, but, you know, we didn't want to achieve. Right. Now you're designing a technology that mentally uh, seek out, target, and, and kill them. I mean, that's a lot of people think who think about this topic. That, you know, we should draw a line there. That's not something that you would want. Um, so if humans are going to be killed by anyone that's going to be by humans who can take responsibility mm. and uh, maybe who kill them in self-defense or something like that. But uh, the more you have a machine that's making that decision and the more it's designed for that purpose and that purpose only, the more controversial it becomes. Okay. 
All right, just a couple more questions for you here. I'm in manufacturing. Sure. When I don't do ra- when I don't do radio, I do some quality control work for a manufacturer yeah. here, and I've seen a lot of changes in manufacturing over the last 25 years or so. Uh, to the point where automation and robotics are making a major impact. Could you talk a little bit about the future of work and how uh, the ethics of technology sort of plays in the uh, in the field of employment? Yeah, so uh, there are various different scenarios that one can think about to discuss. I mean, so one very extreme scenario that... Uh, uh, I mean, a friend of mine, John Danaher, is quite interested in this the scenario where automation and robotics take over m- most work tasks, and so she would have uh, very little work left over for humans to do, so that would be what's sometimes called technological unemployment. Mm. Uh, but you also have uh, what I maybe think are more realistic scenarios where people are still working, but they are working very closely with various kinds of machines and, and robotics, uh, automated uh, technologies, and uh, that might mean, again, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that, you know, you have to make the environment robot-friendly, mm-hmm. and so it means that ultimately you get better outcomes in terms of faster delivery of packages, a better, uh, you know, product being manufactured, uh, but you actually have a person who now performs a much less uh, stimulating, they have less freedom to kind of design their own, uh, you know, how they do to follow the machine, because otherwise, you know, you're not going to get those outcomes before. Uh, so you might have less freedom in how you work. You might uh, have less contact with other human work- workers because you're mostly interacting with machine all day long. And so you start maybe chipping away at some of the things that we associate with meaningful work, such as creativity, the freedom to... Uh, to kind of craft your own uh, job, how do you do it, mm-hmm. the uh, contact with your uh, co-workers. And so that, in a way, is a kind of very negative scenario, how things might develop. Uh, I mean, in one of my uh, papers that I've written with some co-authors, we looked at, you know, okay, those are threats to meaningful work that might come out of automation and robotics. I mean, could there also be opportunities for meaningful work? And uh, I think in theory, you can imagine things. For example, you might, uh, in order to be able to work with some new robotics or new machinery, you might need to acquire new skills. You might need to take on more responsibility because uh, now you are not only responsible for what you do, you're also responsible maybe for what a robot is doing that you're working with. Uh, and again, you have to maybe learn some new skills. And so these are the kinds of things, uh, you know, learning new skills, taking on new responsibilities that are also sometimes associated with meaningful work. So uh, there's, there's a potential for some aspects of this to actually create opportunities for new kinds of meaningful work. I mean, we looked in our research, me and my colleagues, both at uh, this from a sort of philo- philosopher's uh, armchair perspective, if you will. We thought about uh, opportunities and, and threats to meaningful work. But we also had a, a psychology postdoc working with us uh, who went out and looked at how things are in uh, Dutch uh, uh, warehouses where they're using more and more robotics. And mm-hmm. there, of course, it was easier to identify threats to meaningful work than it was to identify as uh, proof of, the, of opportunities for meaningful work. And uh, where there was seemed to be uh, improvements, uh, there seemed to be mostly on the level of management as opposed to the people who are sort of lower down in the work hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that automation and robotics n- need to lead to uh, 
uh, less meaningful work, but uh, we really have to make choices to, to have a sort of human-focused uh, perspective on this and not just technology-driven developments where we're just asking, you know, how can we be uh, the most efficient in terms of producing outcomes, here, cheaper, faster, etc., and make the humans adapt to this. Uh, if we want people to also have access to meaningful work, we may need to also think in terms of, and you know, can we slow down this? Is it really necessary that all packages that they are delivered as quickly as they are these days? Can we, uh, do we really need uh, all the products to be perfect? I mean, in some domains of life, people sort of actually value some certain degrees, degrees of variation and imperfection. Uh, and uh, the human touch, as we talk, the personal touch, as we sometimes call it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, so in a way, it's a kind of a clash between ideals. So on the one hand, you have uh, efficiency, uh, speed, uh, uniformity in outputs. On the other hand, you have things such as, uh, you know, interesting variations, uh, maybe doing things more carefully, uh, having uh, the work uh, that humans do that produces meaningful and, uh, of course, if you're looking at things from a kind of management perspective, uh, just trying to make you, the organization be, uh, you know, make not uh, lose too much money and have everything be quick, uh, then at first glance it might seem like a good idea to just go for the technology-driven, technology-oriented perspective. But on the other hand, actually, if you look at organizations where workers have more uh, where employees have more uh, freedom and more creativity, that also tends to lead to happier uh, employees, mm-hmm. uh, people becoming more creative, uh, becoming more uh, maybe, let's say, loyal to the organization, more willing to work for it, etc. So in the long term, it's not necessarily always going to be the case that what looks like yeah, the, the quick uh, technology-driven solution is going to uh, yield the best outcomes. But So I think we really have to make sort of choices and think about how we allow some of these uh, developments to, to go. And, and we, should, we, sh- we shouldn't view it as a kind of uh, development that necessarily always in every domain leads to more automation, more uh, robotics. Uh, in some domains, it might make things worse and not actually improve things, neither from a point of view of the services, the goods offered, nor from the point of view of sort of uh, job satisfaction for the people working in these different organizations. Yeah, okay. Uh, as a side note, I, I've spoken with John Danaher. I'm very impressed and I very thought-provoking stuff that he that he does. Absolutely. Let's kind of finish off with uh, more of a philosophical thing. I would consider you a, a scholar when it comes to Immanuel Kant, and you have a very interesting paper on. Uh, well, I'm not sure if it's your website, but at any rate, uh, Kant's Universal Law Formula Revisited is something that you wrote a couple of years ago, and perhaps you could yeah. visit that a little bit with the listeners and uh, and explain why you think it's important. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, Kant has this idea that ethics should be about uh, a good person, someone who has their principles to try to live in a kind of principled way and follow certain rules that they adopt for themselves. And then the idea that Kant had was, okay, well, that seems good. And then, you know, how do I choose principles that I'm supposed to be following uh, in order to be a kind of a good, virtuous person? Well, a good idea seems to be to choose principles that you would be willing to lay down as universal laws for all people. So that it's not only the case that you take this on board as the principles that you want to live by. You should also ask how would these other people also made this, these principles into their principles? Would you be kind of happy with that scenario that your principles are also shared by others? And this, on the face of it, 
I mean, in a way, it's kind of an updated version of the golden rule, you know, the way that you treat other people uh, should match with, with how you want them to treat you. What can add the idea of the principles that you adopt for yourself should also be principles that you would be willing to lay down as rules for other people. Seems like a great idea, uh, very intuitive, uh, but uh, philosophers haven't been kind of, uh, well, it's almost an occupational hazard that we always feel an itch to come up with counterexamples. <laughs> uh, we always feel that we, uh, in order to, cri- to, to, to sort of engage critically with something, we have to think about strange cases where if you follow the suggested rules, things uh, somehow, uh, you know, are, they'll get bizarre, it can be counterintuitive, etc. And uh, certainly uh, this Kantian idea of uh, principles uh, that you lay down are willing to treat as universal laws. And that's a kind of key target of a lot of interesting counterexamples that people have tried to cook up. And uh, some of that discussion uh, has kind of not necessarily taken Kant's own uh, explanations what he means by this idea as a starting point, but rather uh, an, uh, kind of a desire to find uh, strange counterexamples and scenarios where this seems to be a bad idea. So people say things such as, well, you know, if I adopted as a personal uh, principle that, let's say, uh, people of my own race, they should be treated uh, better than people of other races. Uh, well, if I'm a member of that particular race, then I maybe, I, perhaps I could want this to be universal law because that would benefit people like me, but it would certainly be uh, terrible for people of other races. So the question is, does the Kantian ideal of you know, living according to principles that you would like to lay down as universal law, would it sanction this? Would it say that, yes, this is morally okay? And obviously that seems to be deeply immoral. Uh, so that's one example of this kind of counterexample that mm. comes up with. Other examples are things such as, well, if I am, if I just describe a very complicated rule, you know, let's say I'm allowed to rob people who wear a certain kind of pair, type of jeans, you know, who walk in a certain street, <laughs> and, you know, who wear a certain kind of baseball cap or whatever, you can devise a rule that's so rare that uh, there's only basically one opportunity to act on it, namely the one that you're facing right now. And you can say, yeah, I want this to be a universal law because now I can rob this person. And so everyone could do it, and well, most people wouldn't have an opportunity to do it, but it's, uh, that's another kind of uh, counterexample that people have discussed, like creating these really complicated rules that seem to apply only to you and mm. that would give you kind of a, a license to do whatever you want. Right, right. But, and so I was interested in how this seems to be taken, uh, taking this idea uh, very far away, maybe from what Kant himself uh, intended and wanted to, to achieve by formulating that more ideal uh, and uh, kind of just twisting it around too much in a way. So. I wanted to go back and look at sort of all of the key terms that uh, Kant uh, introduces when he talks about, I mean, when he talks about principles, he calls them maxims. I mean, that's a kind of old-fashioned word. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he talks about uh, a sort of an ideal that he calls the kingdom of ends, where everyone relates to each other on the basis of shared principles in a way that uh, he thinks would mean uh, mutual respect, uh, treating everyone in a dignified way. And if you start looking at all of these things that uh, he describes as what he's looking for, then something like, uh, you know, racist principles, they just don't 
fit in anymore because we wouldn't have a, a community of people on shared principles. Everyone's treating it, uh, everyone in a kind of dignified way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't have a scenario where people would make these exceptions for themselves so that they, they you know, the formally complicated rules so that they can say, well, I'm following the rule. I would willing to lay down for everyone, but it's been tailor-made to your interests. That seems to clash with the more general ideals that uh, Kant put forth, put forward in his, uh, you know, general theory about. Uh, I mean, he also has another famous rule, which is uh, he says that we should always treat the humanity in each person always as an end in itself and never as a mere means. Hmm. Uh, and he claims that this idea of acting on principles that you'd be willing to lay down as universal laws, in a way, is the other side of the coin from that other idea of treating people as ends and never as mere means. And so it seems to me that when you try to interpret what Kant many talks about these different principles, you know, you want to interpret those ideas in relation to each other so that you can get, you can spell out an ideal that would really fit with this idea of not instrumentalizing others, treating them with dignity, respect, etc. And a lot of the counterexamples that have been formulated against that uh, first principle that we talked about, they don't seem to take into account that that's what he was trying to achieve. So I've been quite interested in trying to reconstruct what exactly it was. I mean, and on the one hand, uh, I think he ends up with a very attractive idea, but it, it's more like an ideal, a practical uh, rule that you could follow in every scenario. So, like, if you're thinking about uh, how to, let's say, program a self-driving car to get, to get back to the previous discussed example, mm-hmm. uh, what it should do in an accident scenario, it's not so clear to me that you could actually use the idea of following a principle that you want to be universal law. As, as a direct decision-making procedure to just kind of decide exactly what the right answer is. It's more like an idea, okay, you want whatever rules you choose to be ones that you, you know, that would treat everyone equally, that would respect people's uh, dignity, etc., not treat them as mere means. And what exactly that means in practice, so for that you might need to move to some other kind of principle that is more general ideal that uh, someone like Kant describes as uh, general uh, moral philosophy. Okay. Wow, I tell you, interesting times we are living in, Dr. Sven. Um, let's, uh, let's wrap it up, and, yeah. and uh, we'll mention your book once again. You have a new book that's called Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. Uh, if people are interested in your book or other stuff related to your work, how is the best, uh, or what's the best way for them to find information about you? Do you have contact information or Twitter, or what would you like, sir? Uh, yeah, I, I guess actually Twitter would be the best, uh, uh, easiest way to find out what I'm doing because whenever I, I do something new, such as, for example, appearing on your show or, <laughs> or you know, I, I have a book out or you know, a paper out or a video I'm participating in or something like that, I always put up a link on Twitter and I, I think I'm the only son I am on there. So, uh, and it's certainly if you look for, you know, I think my Twitter handle is this at Sven Nyholm, my name. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a good place to go. I'm in the book. You can already order it from Amazon if you're so inclined. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so Twitter would be the place I would recommend. Okay, very good. Well, I sure appreciate your time. You're doing really interesting and important work. I hope we can stay in touch. And as this stuff moves forward, maybe we can uh, do an update now and again down the road. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me on the show. You bet. You take care of yourself, Dr. Sven Nyholm. Take care, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, Dr. Sven Nyholm. He's an assistant professor of philosophy and ethics at Utrecht University. That is in the Netherlands. And he's got a wonderful new book, Humans and Robots, Ethics, Agency, and Anthropomorphism. You can find him on the web at Sven Nyholm on Twitter. And you can link there directly from my site uh, from here on out. 
All right, great stuff. I appreciate Dr. Sven spending some time with me and uh, you all as well. Hope you enjoyed that. And let's take a little break here, play a little piece of music. You can all grab a glass of water or a beer or something or whatever you do. And we'll come back and we'll do a little space weather and maybe open the phone, see if anybody wants to talk about anything. It's uh, a little before 1 o'clock in the morning now on the 2nd of June, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. All right, it's Mike Hagan, and I'll be back with you in just a few minutes.